You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, sanctions piling on Russia and President Biden releasing an unprecedented amount of U.S. oil. We will have the latest on what the White House is doing to buoy the U.S. and tech economy and how some tech companies are helping Ukrainian refugees get back to work. Plus, amidst the ongoing chip crisis, Apple looking for new chip suppliers, even in China. We'll talk about why the iPhone maker is expanding its roster next. And a fledgling union takes an early lead in an election to unionize an Amazon warehouse in New York, while the union trails in a separate election in Alabama. We'll have the latest. Let's get an update now on the war in Ukraine as sanctions on Russia mount. President Biden now plans to release a million barrels of oil a day from U.S. reserves for six months to reduce U.S. dependence on foreign supplies. Bloomberg's Emily Wilkins on the Hill joining us now with more details on this. And Emily, talk to us a little bit more about the president's plan and how much of an impact it will actually have on everyday Americans. So we've already seen President Biden go to these oil reserves and tried to release barrels before, trying to ease some of the pressure that we're seeing with oil and gas prices. But this is going to be bigger than anything we've seen. I mean, those last releases were about, I think, 30 million, 60 million barrels. This is going to be 180 million when all is said and done, released roughly a million barrels of oil per day. And this comes as both the U.S. is struggling right now with high gas prices, trying to figure out a way to bring those back down with inflation plus the war in Ukraine. But there's also struggles right now going on in Europe. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has announced that if they want to pay for Russian gas, it's going to have to be in rubles. That could potentially be a huge problem for a lot of the European allies that President Biden has tried to make sure that he's moving with as he goes forward. So I think a lot of questions about what's going to happen next for a number of European countries, particularly Germany, that really do rely on a lot of Russian oil. Emily, President Biden also taking some steps to help alleviate pressure on U.S. companies with regard to the chip crisis and a potential crisis in electric car batteries by invoking the Defense Production Act. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, so this is an act. It's been used before by Biden as well as by other presidents really to sort of help industries that need a little bit of a boost. And right now, the electric vehicle battery industry is something that you've seen concerns about from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. They've written Biden. They've asked him to go ahead and invoke this act to really make sure that they're bolstering electric vehicles, uh, continuing their push there. I mean, this is something, again, it ties into the energy. It ties into the high prices of oil and gas that we're currently seeing. And it's also something that Biden was initially kind of reluctant to do because of concerns from environmental groups. And it shows just right. how much pressure the White House is now under to address some of these concerns. All right, Emily Wilkins for us at the Capitol. Emily, thank you for that update. Meantime, Ukrainian refugees continue to flee, an estimated 4 million so far. And tech companies have not only been cutting off operations in Russia, but also stepping in to help these refugees. Smart Recruiters, for instance, which has an office in Krakow, Poland, has been sheltering refugees while its employees have been ferrying them to and from the Ukrainian border, even bringing them into their own homes. The company is also working to help refugees re-enter the workforce and start rebuilding their lives. Smart Recruiters founder and CEO Jerome Turnick joins us now. Jerome, thank you so much for joining us. Talk to me about the situation at your office in Krakow right now and how your employees are stepping in to help. Yeah, thank you for having me, Emily. I think what uh, what really happened here is uh, happened organically, um, really from the second day of the invasion. Uh, everybody in, in our Krakow office. We have about 150 employees uh, in Krakow, and everyone started to think, how can I help? And uh, they started to drive their car back and forth to the border uh, to pick up refugees. They then uh, brought supplies as necessary. And as you pointed out, um, it uh, quickly evolved to actually welcoming refugees in, in their homes. And uh, uh, at this moment, uh, many of our employees, I would say almost everybody who actually has a big enough living room or, or a guest, uh, guest room has a family at home. Um, you know, one of our employees I have in mind, uh, Mateusz, um, actually welcomed a mom with a baby and an infant. Uh, they've been driving for six days throughout Ukraine before they reached the border. Uh, and he was able to bring them home and uh, provide shelter and food and baby food and uh, strollers and a baby bed, like really the basics uh, of welcoming. And it's been humbling, frankly, to see uh, uh, how much people have stepped up in Poland, which, as Emily pointed, has uh, uh, received the, the majority of the influx of uh, refugees. I understand your office has turned into a, a sort of operations center of sorts. You're, you've, you're giving a stipend, a $500 stipend to employees to help. They are donating supplies of all kinds. Talk to us about how the refugees are doing once they yeah. get to you. Yeah. I mean, this is a dire situation um, for everyone. Uh, many of them have actually uh, uh, arrived as uh, uh, a mother with children, um, older people. Uh, many men have uh, stayed behind to fight. Um, so it is a dire situation, and I think uh, one one light of hope here is the is the connection that has been built between the people of of Poland and Europe in general and the Ukrainian refugees. Like the the you know our Slack channel as an example would match uh, the age of a kid with uh, who can help them. So you would have oh I have a mom here she has an eight year old and a four year old and somebody would say oh actually I have an eight year old and a four year old bring them over and so there's like a family uh, feeling to it that uh, that feels right. 
uh, and at least provides uh, the basics. But as these uh, refugees uh, settle, um, of course, it opens up the question of what is next for them and, uh, and where do they go from there. Right. Many of these refugees don't know where they're going to be sleeping tomorrow, let alone what they're going to do next. You are actually a recruiting company. You help match talent with employers. How are you helping these refugees re-enter the workforce? Yeah, we we actually um, uh, we are a recruiting platform, um, and so we help large enterprises manage their recruiting. Uh, we have several thousand enterprises using our software, and uh, collectively, actually, our customers hire almost a million people a year just in Europe. And so we felt uh, really our responsibility, frankly, our, our duty as as a as a business uh, to actually help. And so what we've done here is we've actually uh, created a fast track application for uh, Ukrainian refugees so that anybody who applies can self-identify as a refugee and then be put into a fast track um, throughout um, uh, the, the employment process at companies like Red Bull or Bosch or Visa or Ikea who are all using our software. And I think it is it is actually a, a moment in time where businesses who have been incredibly supportive uh, of the war imposing sanctions on Russia, making donations, and I I would say now it's time to hire Ukrainians. That's the next step because 4 million people are going to be looking for a job. Well, that is certainly unequivocal. Jerome Turnick, Smart Recruiters founder and CEO, thank you for bringing that story to us. Coming up, the IPO window could be closing or closed. We'll talk about the options for late stage private companies in an ongoing down market with Phil Hazlitt of EquitySend. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. 
Stiefel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. As stocks continue to whipsaw, some of the big-name startups that were expected to go public early this year have slowed their rush to market. Reddit, for instance, had discussed listing shares as soon as the first quarter of 2022, according to Bloomberg sources. Yet even after filing the paperwork for an IPO, they haven't taken the next step. Let's talk about all this and more with Phil Hazlitt, founder and chief strategy officer at Equity Zen. Phil, I was speaking to a venture capitalist this week who said the IPO window is frozen shut. Would you agree? It's frozen shut. It's closed. It's double locked. It's, it's <laughs> nothing's happening for a while. So what next? <laughs> so I think we're this, in this period of uncertainty about inflation and its impact on companies. You've got tech stocks that are down to almost pre-pandemic levels of pricing, right? Uh, kind of like good yardsticks of the market, like Zoom, uh, DocuSign, Peloton. Um, and you've got uh, geopolitical risk out there. And until those things are kind of have a bit more resolution, I think you're going to see a lot of companies uh, thinking about raising a new round of funding or something that we're starting to see now, which is starting to kind of control their cash through layoffs or kind of uh, reprojecting some of their growth. So GoPuff, for example, is reportedly cutting a lot of jobs. And also Bloomberg is reporting they're raising a billion dollars in new funding with no IPO in sight. They had originally raised at a $15 billion valuation. Not sure if that valuation will hold up. But what do you imagine is going on behind the scenes at a company like GoPuff right now? Some very stressful board meetings, for sure. I think you're going to see some valuations come down. Um, one of the scary things is that a lot of companies raised a lot of private capital in 2021 at really high valuations. And now they're probably effectively underwater and are a little behind on growth strategies and growth projections. And so I think the real big next wave is going to be kind of this day of reckoning where companies admit it, start layoffs, have to raise money, but probably at terms that they're not really excited about. Um, and you're going to have to hear the D word in, in Silicon Valley, which is the down round. Um, and we're going to start to see more of those kind of come out. Um, and we're just, you know, it's really if you want to be the first to kind of uh, tear the Band-Aid off or if you kind of want to wait and hope that, that things are going to get better. But, uh, you know, I like to say hope is not a strategy. We saw Instacart sort of tear off the Band-Aid, lowering their own valuation from 39 to $24 billion voluntarily. They're not in the process of raising money, at least not right now. You're saying mass layoffs, a mass number of down rounds. Are we going to see companies go under, get acquired? I think a combination of all three. I thought what Instacart did was a really gutsy move, really, to kind of come out first and say, look, there's a benefit to actually repricing ourselves at 24 billion. We can now issue stock to our employees at a more fair value. Our competitors like DoorDash are down a lot. Um, I think other companies are going to do so. You're probably going to see some consolidation. And I think you're going to start to see a paradigm shift where instead of it being a very founder-friendly market to raise capital, it's going to shift to the VCs and to the growth equity investors. They're going to get better terms. They're going to get better valuations. And we're going to start to see that happen. One of the interesting things at Equity Zen is because of kind of where we sit, we can actually see secondary transactions that are happening in between the last funding round, right? Because we usually don't see prices happen for a year or two at a time. And we're definitely seeing kind of pricing compression versus just a quarter ago. What does it mean for employees in the middle of the great resignation when a lot of people have been thinking about, you know, do I really want to keep doing what I'm doing? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the first thing is a lot of these employees were really excited and anticipating some type of liquidity for their shares by way of some type of IPO or maybe a SPAC. And maybe if they'd started thinking about life events. So when you compound the fact that the markets are down, you're not getting liquidity. Um, 
goods are costing more, a lot of companies are starting to proactively kind of reach out to places like ourselves and start to think about liquidity for their employees in the private markets, right? And so fortunately, that's kind of a part of the capital market structure that's that's grown a lot in the last, you know, seven or eight years. So we expect and, you know, to keep seeing that happen. Now, your rival Forge, I believe, just did a SPAC. Is Equities End going to IPO eventually, though maybe not in the near down market future? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> window's very closed right now, but, you know, we started Equities End to bring private markets to the public, right? And that's our mission. And we've been fortunately been able to grow. And as a private company, haven't been inhibited by, you know, how we can deliver that to our customers. Um, but, you know, as my, my co-founder and I, one of our responsibilities is to kind of evaluate all options. And if there's an opportunity to significantly grow the business and, and kind of further that mission, uh, you know, we uh, will keep our door open for that. All right. Phil Hazlitt, founder and chief strategy officer at Equities End. Thank you. Coming up. Could some new supplies start chipping in to Apple? Why Apple is looking to diversify its supply chain for iPhone parts. And to unionize or not, Amazon workers in the midst of a critical vote in New York and Alabama will have the latest next. This is Bloomberg. exploring new sources for the memory chips that go into iPhones after a disruption at a key Japanese partner, including its first Chinese producer. Joining us now, Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, who covers Apple. So, Mark, who's Apple talking to for new parts and why? Yeah, Apple, for one of the first times, is looking to a China-based memory supplier. Now, memory, NAND memory, NAND flash memory, that's actually the storage, right, that they have in MacBooks and iPhones and iPads at this point. So they're talking to this China-based company called Yangtze Memory. And this is notable because Apple traditionally builds its devices in China, but it doesn't use China-based suppliers for components of this magnitude, right? That's potentially going to change. They are testing some of their memory chips. They are having discussions with them. There's no guarantee that these chips will actually be implemented into an iPhone or another device this year, but they're working toward it. What Apple has always tried to do is diversify its component sourcing as much as possible. So if you have, like we had with one memory supplier in February, an issue where a factory became contaminated, or you have a, you know, a, a weather disruption or a COVID disruption, right? there are backup suppliers because Apple can't afford with everything on the line to delay products because of component issues or to have less supply than expected. So that's why they try to have backup sources. What's the significance of Apple looking at a Chinese supplier in the midst of this big push to bring chip production back to the United States? Yeah, I mean, to some people it may not be a great look, right? But business is business, and consumers at the end of the day want to get their phones. Investors at the end of the day want Apple to be able to ship the phones. And so if they need to go to a supplier that may you know, not look so hot right now, right? It's a bad look, but at least they're going to be able to get the phone shipped. Now, I think the more possibly the more detrimental thing is that these suppliers traditionally have not done as good a job at creating those components as some of the other suppliers in Asia and elsewhere in the world, right? So that would be my main concern if I were Apple, getting the best product, because what you don't want are some iPhones to perform better than others in the eyes of consumers. All right, Mark Gurman, thank you for that update, something we'll continue to follow. 
Meantime, a fledgling union taking an early lead in an election to unionize at an Amazon facility in New York, while in a completely separate election in Alabama, in Alabama union efforts trailing this one a do-over election. I want to get an update on this with our Josh Adelson in San Francisco. Josh, we actually have some breaking news that fledgling union in New York looks like it's on track to win. With the majority of the votes, a bit over half counted and more counting tomorrow, the union is in the lead, which means there's the potential for really a stunning upset here if, in fact, when all the votes are counted, including any challenged ballots that end up getting counted, the union has a majority. The, the bigger picture here is that in recent decades, unions have almost never succeeded in big labor board elections at the very top non-union brand name prominent companies in the United States. So that the union is currently in the lead more than halfway through is stunning. And this is happening in a campaign where the union is a pretty DIY effort led by an employee that Amazon fired a couple years ago. Meantime, we're seeing the trend shifting in the other direction in this election in Alabama, which as you know the history of this very well, they're doing this election over again because of a lot of controversy, but looks like the union not winning yet so far there. What do you make of that? So there the union is behind by around 100 votes, and there are around 400 challenged ballots, we've heard, which means ballots where there's a dispute between the two sides about whether that envelope should be opened and that vote should be counted. So we don't know what the result will be, but Amazon, in its effort to defeat the union, is ahead in Alabama, though not by as much as last time. Last time there were challenged ballots, but there weren't enough of them to make the difference. And so the union would have been defeated if not for the labor board concluding that there had been too much misconduct and so the election should be run again. In each of these cases, Amazon has, according to workers, been aggressively campaigning against organizing. And it is not easy to win a big labor board election against a company that's determined to dissuade workers from unionizing. How are Amazon workers everywhere else watching this? We've seen already at Starbucks how a win just one place can be a lightning rod and a, a lightning bolt in terms of inspiring other people to organize. We saw with the first. All right, Bloomberg's Josh Idelson there. Uh, looks like we lost Josh, but certainly as he was discussing, this could be very significant. Obviously, this is something that Amazon employees everywhere are watching closely. We'll see if these union votes or how these union votes impact uh, potential unionization efforts at other Amazon warehouses across the country and around the world. Coming up, the $1 trillion tech route from Netflix to Meta, from Zoom to Airbnb. Who are the winners and losers of the post-pandemic age? We will discuss. This is Bloomberg.
What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back. Tech stocks, volatile start to the year, shows investors are shifting away from pandemic darlings like Etsy, Netflix, PayPal, Peloton, all among the worst performers in the S&P so far this year. What does it mean? What's next? Let's bring in Mark Lieben, JMP Securities, a citizens company CEO. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. So what actually looks good in tech to you right now? Well, Looking at the screen, uh, not much. I mean, the first quarter obviously was one of the worst uh, performers in the entire market. And uh, we came from such lofty levels that I think it's kind of the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But I think uh, throwing out tech uh, after the first quarter is a bad idea because you just mentioned it. It's part of all of our lives and a more increasing part of our lives. And that's not going to change. In fact, it's accelerating. I think it's just what our investors want to pay for it. We've been focusing on some of those broken names here at JMP that have still garnered a lot of wallet. It's just their growth rate is decelerated. They've had some digestion issues, and we're still interested in some of those names. You mentioned some. PayPal is a name we like a lot. The payment space, uh, which is obviously overtaking a lot of our wallet. Uh, it's a big part of citizens. In fact, the citizens pay. Pay is, is changing. Cash is trash. It's People are paying with their phone, and that's not going to decelerate. We mentioned DocuSign as a name that had a very tough first quarter. Insider buying, but a part of our lives that's going to continue. We're not going to go down to the corner to get things notarized and, and, and have stacks of paper. So that's what we're looking for at JMP. And I think some of these big darlings have had a hard time in the first quarter. But we're still there. And I think you're going to see some of the performance the back half of the year be certainly better than the first quarter. And that's what we're focused on. 
So do you think these names are going to continue to fall uh, and for how much longer before it gets better? Well, I, I, again, I think the investors will look at their first quarter reports and see the digestion of, of, of the poor reports that they had from the fourth quarter. Is it still getting worse? And I think even a slight diminution in that getting worse will be enough for investors to take note. Um, again, this is kind of the bigger they are, the harder they fall to trade. Um, you put up the FANG stocks. My good friend Jeff Lager at Capital Group, we call it Mount Fang because we put Microsoft and Tesla in those names. Um, you look at the divergence in performance within the FANGs, which used to trade in lockstep. They don't anymore. Microsoft had a blowout first quarter. Apple almost hit a new high today. And then you look at some of the performance of Netflix and Facebook. They're far worse and divergent from those names. So, again, we had a market where everything worked. We had a market for a little while where nothing worked. Now we're going to a stock picker's market. And I think that's what we're focused on. I think this whole Fang thing needs to be redefined a bit. I agree in any way. I guess it would be Mang since it's not Facebook anymore. It is Meta. Do you think Netflix should still be in that group? Well, it's a great question, Emily. I mean, it's a leader in the category. A lot of people are playing catch up. A lot of people are sniping at them and trying to take their share of wallet. Um, it's the leader of that group. We're going to learn a lot, I think through 2022 about what names should and shouldn't be in there. Wall Street loves acronyms. They love themes. We had the Nifty 50. You know, we had all these different names over time. They've usually ended poorly. I think for some of these names, it already has. I think for other those others names like Microsoft and Apple, it continues to climb that wall of worry. And I think well, what we should be looking at is, is there ground ahead of them to gain market share? Um, what we haven't talked about in a long time, you certainly haven't, I certainly haven't, is a specter regulation. We don't talk about that anymore. That's a great backdrop for some of these names that had that overhang, which could have been multiple compression, and we're not seeing that. So, you, again, you got to go bottoms up. you got to pick up where the market is, is leading them. Apple's a great example of what they're doing in Apple Pay and what they're doing with our share of wallet and share of time, and that's what you want to pay attention to. Well, they're certainly talking about regulation in Washington on both sides of the aisle, but obviously the war has uh, taken mine and attention share. Do away with the acronyms, Mark. Is that what you're saying? Fang, not Fang, Mang, uh, no more? I, I mean, I added, I added the mountain to it. So I added Microsoft and Tesla. I've been doing that for a while. Um, I think it's an easy thing to put your uh, moniker around, but we got to find some new leadership as well because um, as long as these five or six companies take up such a large share of, uh, of our investing mindset and a share of the, of the indexes, I think people are going to look for um, potentially regulating. Again, we've talked a lot about regulation. I haven't seen a lot. I've seen some self-regulation. Mm -hmm. The market's regulating themselves, which is really, really interesting to me. It's not Congress. I, I said to somebody uh, not too long ago, I, I don't think uh, the average congressman knows what, how to Twitter, uh, how to tweet, excuse me, how to use their Twitter. Etc. They have a lot of people who help them. If they can't figure it out themselves, how are they going to regulate it? And that was the right. backdrop that I always thought would happen, which we'd have less regulation, not more. Well, they've talked a lot about regulation. They have to act on it. We have seen tougher regulation happening in Europe, but of course, much remains to be seen. Mark Lehman, JMP Securities, a citizens company CEO. Thank you, Mark, as always. Coming up. DAOs, that is Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. What are they? And what is their role in the crypto ecosystem? We're going to speak with the co-founders of the Decentralized Investment Platform Syndicate next. This is Bloomberg.
It is time now for our crypto report, and we're going to focus on DAOs today, decentralized autonomous organizations. Here to explain what those are, our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, it's complicated, but I know you can boil it down. Yeah, let's try to boil it down for you, partially through the use cases. These are decentralized autonomous organizations. They have different voting structures that tend to decentralize and get together groups of people who want to invest in certain projects or give to certain charities. And some examples of this that we've seen are, for example, Constitution Dow, which raised about $47 million to try to buy an original copy of the Constitution. Of course, we know they were outbid by billionaire Ken Griffin. Pleaser Dow, which has invested in a series of NFTs and has given millions of dollars to charities. And Ukraine Dow, which has also raised millions of dollars for Ukraine in the wake of the start of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. So we have a bunch of ways that these have been used from venture funding to charities. It's going to be interesting how they continue to take shape, Emily, in the process of investing more and investing more through digital ecosystems. All right, Shanali, thank you. I want to bring in our next guest for a deeper dive here. Will Pepper and Ian Lee, the co-founders of Syndicate, joining us now, which is shaping its own role in the DAO space. Ian, I want to start with you. There are plenty of definitions for DAOs out there. In the simplest terms, what is a DAO to you? Yeah, the way that we think about DAOs is that it's a web-free technology that enables communities to coordinate capital natively on the internet. And if we think about the applications of that, it's pretty profound in terms of how, you know, communities, people, and capital work together. And so one of the biggest application areas of DAOs, in our view, is the area of investing. And when we think of investing, it's not just about the allocation of financial capital, but also the allocation of human capital as well. And so um, what we're building at Syndicate is the Web3 infrastructure to uh, power investing on the internet um, through our infrastructure. So, Will, on that note, talk to us a little bit more about your view for how Syndicate fits into the future of DAOs and decentralized investing in general. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been involved in the DAO space since investing in the very first DAO in 2016. I'm called the DAO then because there were no other DAOs at the time. And the way we see investing moving is becoming dramatically more community-owned and dramatically more transparent and dramatically more accessible. And the interesting thing is that DAOs themselves, the structures they enable are not new. For example, under the hood, Syndicate uses investment clubs, which have existed for over a century. But the thing that is new is how easily and quickly and cheaply you can coordinate it. Whether that's Constitution DAO, which I was on the core team of raising 40 plus million dollars in under a week. Whether that's Ukraine DAO, raising large amounts of money to go to Ukraine at the time when they need it in a very acute time of crisis. That speed and that efficiency is incredibly new, even if the structures themselves are things that have existed before. You know, since the start of Ukraine DAO, I'm wondering, you were part of the early members of the Constitution DAO as well, from what I remember. Are there ways that DAOs have changed, Will, that surprised you? Yeah, I think that um, the interesting thing is that uh, previously people thought that DAOs would be very long running. So the idea of the DAO in 2016 was this kind of ecosystem fund to fund projects on the Ethereum network for a very long time. And some DAOs are being referred to now as financial flash mobs, essentially DAOs that form very quickly for a specific purpose. 
execute on that purpose and then and then in some cases uh, keep going in a lighter way or dissolve completely. So I think that that's one thing that's really fascinating is that if you wanted to set up, say, a fund for these things, it would take um, many, many months of work. But because DAOs can be spun up so much more quickly, they can also be spun down so much more quickly once their purpose is done. Mm -hmm. Are there structural issues, Ian? Are there governance issues that really still need to be worked out among DAOs when people are thinking about entering into them? Yeah, one of the biggest things that um, we see is uh, one of the potential limiters for the impacts of DAOs is how legally these things are going to be um, uh, you know, viewed and, 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 and handled, right? And so a lot of the members and, and originators of these DAOs, they, they want to do the right thing, right? As Will was mentioning, most of these organizations that come together using DAOs on the internet are trying to accomplish a really specific and important purpose, whether that's you know, um, funding um, you know, projects or people that deserve it, whether that is funding some kind of uh, philanthropic or nonprofit related or charitable purpose, or in the case of Ukraine DAO, trying to provide you know, aid to the people that need it the most, right? And most of these organizations and these people, I mean, they're not trying to do bad things. They're not trying to go around the laws. They don't want to, you know, um, be investigated. They don't want to go to jail or anything like that. And so what DAOs need are actually uh, legal pathways where they can um, accomplish their mission and also protect the purpose, the mission of the DAO, as well as the members of those DAOs. And so that is a big part of what Syndicate um, and we are doing, is providing these uh, very tried and true legal pathways for people to use this technology for the purposes that are really, really important. So as Will mentioned, you know, investment clubs as a legal construct have been around for more than 100 years. And some of the things that we're working on are what are some other legal designs where people can utilize this technology and not need to worry about whether or not they're you know, maintaining compliance with various uh, regulations, whether it be right. the SEC or otherwise. So there's definitely concerns that this can, all, this can all get a little messy. Will, I'm curious, what have been the learnings from the Constitution DAO situation, and, and where is that project today? Yeah, yeah. So Constitution DAO, after we lost the bid, we, we spun down and we... we, we we effectively dissolved the DAO, refunded the money, and people could uh, people could could get their full contributions back. Um, one thing that's very interesting about Constitution DAO, I helped a lot with their compliance, just personally helping guide them through it. And one thing is that we could not uh, give ownership of the Constitution. Um, we could give people the ability to vote on where it was displayed and, uh, for example, uh, how it should be presented but we couldn't give them ownership of the document itself. And I think there's this regulatory gap we see right now where people really want ownership, but the current laws as they're structured don't allow for that to happen. So in reality, um, the current investor protection laws um, are leading to people uh, getting uh, even uh, less ownership and even less protection um, uh, in the current state. So we're definitely on a path where there's a conflict between um, uh, the way the regulations are written and the desires that people have. And, um, and I hope that that conflict is resolved where people can have actual ownership of these DAOs um, in the future.
All right, Will Papper, Ian Lee, Syndicate co-founders. Fascinating discussion, Shanali Basik as well. Thank you all for joining us. Coming up, women helping women to get to the top and stay there. We will speak to the CEO of Chief, Carolyn Childers, a newly anointed unicorn. This is Bloomberg. A private network of senior executive women designed to drive more women into positions of power is announcing $100 million in new funding, bringing their total valuation to $1.1 billion. I want to talk about that and more with Chief CEO and co-founder Carolyn Childers. Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Talk to us a little bit about how Chief started it and what you believe sets it apart from other networking opportunities out there. Uh, well, I'm super excited to be able to join you today. Um, and the idea of Chief, it, it came from a very personal place for myself and my co-founder, Lindsay, where we were getting more senior in our careers and spending all of our time mentoring others and managing our teams and no longer had a real network, a community, resources to be able to tap into as we were navigating the new challenges of senior leadership. Um, and. Uh, it's the old adage of it gets lonely at the top, but it gets lonely at the top a lot earlier for women. Uh, so we were really inspired to build a community specifically focused on senior executive women. And that was the inspiration for us launching Chief. How is Chief different than, from example, The Wing, which I know struggled to stay in business, and it's, it's a different value proposition, but I'm curious what you think differentiates this from alternatives. Yeah, so Chief is first and foremost, as I mentioned, focused on a more senior executive women. Um, we think there are just amazing communities that exist out there for women at large. We saw a real white space of being able to focus in on senior executive women. And for us, it was really about how do we drive more women into positions of leadership and keep them there and really focus on that leadership development uh, that is so critical at every stage of your career. Um, and so while uh, we often are compared, um, I think what we often say is we're a community that has a space that our, uh, that our community can come together in, um, but we're a community first. What trends are you seeing right now with women leadership in business? Are we seeing more women get to the C-suite? Are we seeing more women stay there? Certainly, it's still not enough. Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic just threw everything on its head. Um, and I think that is why Chief has had such success over the last few years. We went into a pandemic where women leaders in particular were not only having to manage their teams through an unprecedented time, but also their families. Um, and I think that is why you saw so much of uh, the women workforce actually drop out. Um, and it's why something like Chief resonated in such a big way in that moment, because there were no playbooks. There was no place to turn to of how do you navigate this new normal. Uh, and it was a really amazing opportunity for us to solidify what we can provide for this community. And I think when you fast forward to where we are today, 
even as things are starting to return back to normal, we're still in this distributed workforce where connection is just such a critical thing that we are all craving. And Chief really helps to provide so much of that. We're in the middle of a down market. We are seeing the IPO window. A guest earlier said it is double locked, shut for now. How is that shaping your strategy about how to use this new cash that you've raised? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, we uh, all capital that we have ever raised is focused on how do we build the best member experience for the 12,000 women that are a part of our network today and the many more that we hope join over the next few years. And for us, that is really starting to invest in a much deeper uh, investment in our technology and our data so that we can really start to build personalization. Everybody's career journey is different, and we want to make sure that we are connecting people with the right individuals, the right resources, the right information for them to navigate the, the specific challenge that they are, that they are pursuing. Um, the other thing for us to, um, you know, 70% of our members are actually sponsored by companies. Um, so 60% of the Fortune 100 companies have chief members. And we're really excited to use this capital to start to build deeper relationships directly with those companies so that sponsorship of something like Chief is a no-brainer. Carolyn Childers, CEO and co-founder of Chief. Thank you, Carolyn, for sharing that vision with us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Join us tomorrow for discussion with the CEO of Brightline, Naomi Allen, and Justin Kahn, co-founder of Twitch. And don't forget to check out our new podcast. Find it anywhere you get your podcasts and get our daily roundup. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.